This episode is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 179. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you chapter 37 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Kate met with Lothanasi Field Commander Janus Starson. Kate had questions about the strange skunk morph who has been following her for the last few days, a man she now knows as an immortal called Murakir Kunis. Police records told Kate that Murakir is a special operative with the Ministry of Defense, and gave her some details on his biography, but nearly everything about the man's service record is classified. Janus explains that Murakir was a member of the Age of Heroes, the generation that fought the dark wizard Nasage and witnessed the fall of the gods. A disciple of Artela, the goddess of the wild, Murakir saved his mistress from an assassination attempt soon after the Great Fall. The young wizard was mortally wounded in the process, and Artela gave him a portion of her divine power, making him an immortal. Sometime after that, Murakir was captured by a mysterious cult, which tried to steal Artela's power from him. They failed, but only partly. Murakir's power became tainted, tied up with a powerful entity outside the material plane. Ever since then, Murakir has fought the cult and the shadowy being they worship. The entity's power waxes and wanes over the centuries, and Murakir's power fluctuates with it. When the entity grows weaker, Murray falls into a coma-like sleep. When the skunk wakes up, it means the cult is on the move again. Murakir finds out what they're doing and tries to stop them, making use of mortals called pawns to help him in the fight. If he succeeds, the entity's power fades again, and Murray goes back to sleep. Kate realizes that this cult is the same one behind the recent string of murder kidnappings. Murray seems to have settled on Kate as his latest pawn, but Kate doesn't know if she can trust him. The old immortal is obviously paranoid, after fighting the same conspiracy for a thousand years, and he seems like he might be a little unhinged. Janus advises Kate to talk to one of the pawns who helped Murakir the last time around. Her old boss, Captain Joe Montgomery. The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 37 Janus's driver returned Kate to Justice Tower, 
dropping her off at the second-level garage. Kate requisitioned an SID cruiser. The light flyer would have been overkill for this mission, and the last thing she needed was to give the boys in internal affairs anything else to raise eyebrows over. By the time she pulled the skimmer around, Lizzie was waiting for her at the bus stop in front of the building. Hey, nice work at the library, Kate said, as Lizzie climbed in and fastened the restraint harness. You may have just broken this case wide open. Lizzie acknowledged the praise with a small, gracious nod. You said there was another clue you had connected to Oz. What was it? Kate pulled the skimmer out into traffic and started heading for the nearest on-ramp to the highway. Okay, this is going to take some explaining. They headed south, out of the valley, and toward the Broadfield borough. Along the way, Kate filled in Lizzie on her encounters with Murakir, as well as the backstory Janus had given her. So this isn't just a cult from thirty years ago, Lizzie said. More like thirteen hundred years ago to hear Janus tell it. Kate agreed. Shouldn't the Lightbringers be handling this? Lizzie asked. If this entity the cult worships is really an outsider, that would seem to be their purview, wouldn't it? The entity might be, Kate said. But the cultists are humans, breaking human laws. They have a right to due process. She shook her head and tightened her fingers on the skimmer's control yoke. I've seen the Lightbringers in action, Lizzie. Up close. They're not the right tool for something like this. Not if you want to take someone alive. Lizzie accepted this with a flick of her tail. So Mercure chose you. Any idea why? Half a dozen unsettling images rose up out of her perfect memory. Because their god has been calling to me in my dreams, she thought. No idea, she said aloud. If Murray and I are after the same bad guys, then I'll play along for now. But I need to make sure I can trust him first. She pulled off at an exit she had long ago memorized and took surface roads eastward to a quiet, mid-scale suburb. Mature oak and maple trees lined narrow streets in front of single-family houses dressed in brick and wooden siding. She pulled into the driveway of a white and brown house with a broad porch and a beautifully manicured garden. Lizzie peered up at the house with a mixture of curiosity and skepticism. You said we were investigating a lead on the white? We'll worry about that later, Kate said. Right now I need to move on the lead Janus gave me, and I need your help. They exited the skimmer and followed a path of granite paving stones up to the front door. Kate pressed the doorbell and waited, bouncing anxiously on the balls of her feet. If we're lucky, we'll have beaten him home, she said, half to herself. That'll make this a lot easier. Lizzie rocked her ears forward and fanned out her whiskers, but she said nothing. After about a minute, the door opened, revealing a short, theriomorph woman. She had the form of a black and brown-furred wolf, but she was fairly plump and innocuous-looking for a predator. Her dark fur had gone gray along her muzzle but her amber eyes were still bright and clear. Kate pitched her voice upward, in a tone of childlike wonder. Why, Grandma, what big eyes you have! The wolf woman laughed, then wrapped Kate in a hug. Kate, this is a surprise. Oh, it's good to see you. Kate returned the hug fiercely, squeezing the woman tight. Good to see you too, Martha. 
Martha pulled back from the embrace, gripped Kate's forearms once more, then turned her attention to Lizzie. And who's this? Martha, this is Corporal Elizabeth Moore, Kate said. She's my partner in missing persons at SID. Lizzie, this is Martha Montgomery. She's a family friend. Martha took Lizzie's hand in both of hers and gripped it warmly. Welcome, my dear. Lizzie curtsied, adding a flourish with her long tail. It's an honor to meet you. Please come in, Martha said, beckoning them both inside. What brings you here, Katie dear? Business, unfortunately, Kate said, but I thought maybe first we could have some of that herbal tea, sit and chat for a while. Martha's bushy tail wagged impishly. It stuck out through a tailored hole in the back of her dress, which Kate knew Martha had sewn herself. That sounds like a lovely idea, dear. Joseph should be along in half an hour or so, but I expect you already knew that. Kate slid her eyes over to Lizzie to judge her reaction. The leopard morph looked completely unsurprised. She smiled knowingly back at Kate, as if to say, Why, yes, I did figure out we were here to talk to your old boss, and you think he's more likely to keep things civil in front of a stranger. They gathered around the kitchen table while they waited for the kettle to boil. Kate looked up and around at the high shelves covered with knick-knacks, the walls decorated with needlepoint samplers and pictures of ecclesiast saints. A large yew-tree crucifix hung on one wall. Unlike the Mariahist version, this one included a bronze figure of the crucified Yahshua. Kate remembered standing here as a small child, staring up at the crucifix with a feeling of morbid fascination. The icon no longer shocked her, though, and that bit of continuity made the house feel safe and homey. So you knew Kate when she was little? Lizzie asked. Oh, yes, Martha said, looking fondly in Kate's direction. Her father was my husband's partner many years ago. We came to the hospital when little Katie was born. She was such a tiny thing, you'd never believe it now. She gestured at Kate's lanky, 180-centimeter frame. But she had a pair of lungs on her, let me tell you. Lizzie giggled. I bet she was a cute kid. She was, Martha agreed, though half the time she was all scraped up and covered in dirt. Katie was never one to play things safe. I see that hasn't changed, Lizzie said dryly. So I hear, Martha said. She raised her eyebrows in Kate's direction. I understand you switched to special investigations. That's about the furthest thing from playing it safe I can imagine. Kate lowered her eyes, uncomfortable. Yeah, well, opportunity of a lifetime, right? She hesitated. Did, um, did the cap say anything about it? About me joining SID? Martha smiled gently. He did, dear. But married couples must have the privilege to rant to one another in confidence. It's not as if he could tell anyone else. Kate nodded reluctantly. Yeah, okay. Martha poured the tea, and the conversation wandered for a while. Kate asked Martha about her health. Martha asked Lizzie about her childhood abroad. Lizzie coaxed more stories out of Martha about Kate and her family. Kate had almost managed to ignore the fact that this was anything but a social call, 
but then the garage door opened, and Kate heard the sound of Montgomery's old skimmer pull inside. Kate's stomach flip-flopped. She held her cup of tea tightly in both hands, took slow, even breaths, and tried to look relaxed. Captain Montgomery had obviously seen the police cruiser parked outside, because he came into the house with a worried expression and one hand on the grip of his sidearm. Martha was telling Lizzie a story as the door opened, and Kate saw his whole body relax when he heard his wife's voice. Then his eyes met Kate's, and the tension was back again. His face gave away nothing, but his dark eyes flickered from Kate to Martha and back to Kate. Hello, dear, Martha said warmly. Katie and her partner came by for a chat. Have you met Lizzie yet? Montgomery seemed to notice Lizzie for the first time. He cleared his throat and managed a nod in her direction. Uh, not yet. Good evening, Corporal. Captain. Lizzie inclined her head more deeply, halfway to the table. Kate took a deep breath. I'm sorry to barge in, Cap, but we've got a situation. Murakir is back in the city. Something flashed across Montgomery's face, hidden almost as soon as it arose. His hand clenched briefly into a fist, then relaxed. How do you know about Murakir? Partly from Janus, Kate said, but mostly because he's been tracking me down to talk to me. She lowered her eyes. I know we've had our differences lately, but this feels a lot bigger than us and I don't know what to do. Janus said I should ask you for help. So I'm asking. Montgomery was silent for a long moment. Kate looked up at him, then away, then back at him. His expression was distant, pensive. Martha, he said at last, his voice barely above a whisper, we'll be in the study. Martha nodded. Of course, dear. Don't worry about me and Elizabeth. I think we'll have plenty to talk about. Montgomery turned and started walking down the hallway. Kate took another deep breath, then followed him. The captain's study was covered on three walls by bookshelves, all of them jammed to capacity from floor to ceiling. Kate had wandered in here many times as a child, gazing up curiously at all the books and wondering how Montgomery could have read so many of them. She knew the titles covered a wide variety of topics. History, biographies, travel, political science, poetry. But it was the spy thrillers and military sci-fi novels that took up the largest share of the space, their spines cracked and their pages dog-eared and stained from countless re-readings. Apart from the books, the room held a large reclining chair, Montgomery's desk, and a few lamps. Montgomery gestured to the recliner. Have a seat, Katie. Kate blinked. The captain hadn't called her Katie since she'd started working at Precinct 9. He'd never explained his reasons, but she always supposed it was to avoid any appearance of favoritism. Warily, she sat, perching on the edge of the chair. Montgomery eased himself into the desk chair and turned it to face her. He leaned forward, then looked down at his hands, seeming to gather himself. How much has your mother told you about Jacob? he asked. Kate was momentarily thrown by the question. She'd been expecting a conversation about Murakir, 
not her biological father. Um, not a lot, she said at last. I know he was your partner. When I was thirteen, she told me how he died. Montgomery looked up at her, something sharp and penetrating in his eyes. What did she tell you, specifically? Kate thought about it. Her eidetic memory could reach back that far, but she had to concentrate on it. Um, uh, she said it was a gang member, from one of the gangs you two broke up. He shot Jacob in the back while he was working another case. The captain nodded slowly. That's what I told her, he said. Something in the way he said it made Kate look up at him. Montgomery was looking at his hands again, rubbing the skin at the base of his claws, shifting his feet beneath him. You lied to my mom? Kate demanded. Montgomery winced. Lied might be too strong a word, but it wasn't the whole truth either. He paused, apparently weighing his next words carefully. Kate held her breath. Jacob and I were in homicide, Montgomery said. We were tracking down a set of bodies that turned up on the street, drained of blood. Some of them had been tortured, but most hadn't. Is all this sounding familiar? Kate nodded. The Midnight Snatcher case. Lizzie just found some references to it this morning. Montgomery nodded. Murakir came to us while we were working the case. He helped us connect the dots. That's when we learned about the cult. Kate leaned forward in her chair. The man who was arrested, him Khaled, was he in the cult? He had the tattoo, Montgomery said. I assume you know about the tattoos by now? Kate nodded. It looked to be a few years old when we caught him, so I think he was a real participant and not a patsy. Montgomery's furry brows drew down toward his muzzle. But his story didn't hold up. Jacob and I started finding the pieces, tracing things back to the people who were really behind it. That's surprising, Kate said, frowning. If this cult has been around for a thousand years, you'd think they'd be good at covering their tracks. They're better at it now, Montgomery said. But Murakir hadn't been awake in more than a hundred years at that point. I think they'd gotten complacent. He shrugged one broad shoulder. By the time they knew we were on to them, we'd gathered enough evidence to implicate a dozen high-profile figures. I'm talking about city councilors, judges... Imperial prosecutors, a few barons, even a senator. The rot ran through the highest levels of imperial society. Kate sat back in her chair, gaping. This was corruption on a level she'd never thought possible. Maybe in other countries, somewhere far away, but not in Metamore. What happened? she asked. Montgomery took a slow, heavy breath. They tried to warn us off. Over and over, powerful people showed up in our lives, telling us to drop it. Jacob wouldn't let it go, and since he was the senior partner, I backed him up. His voice grew quiet. So they killed Jacob. Montgomery fell silent then, for nearly a minute. It was strange, Kate thought. On the one hand, she knew he was talking about her biological father— a man her mother had dearly loved. But she had no memory of that man, no connection to him beyond a few photographs and second-hand stories. His life didn't feel real to Kate. 
but the grief in Montgomery's face and body language was real enough. Eventually, Montgomery spoke again. Two patrol officers answered his call at a crime scene. I don't know what happened next. The radios were out for about ten minutes. By the time more backup arrived, Jacob was dead. He had two ten-millimeter slugs to the back of his head, and the ballistics matched his own service weapon. The patrol officers brought in the ganger they said was responsible. Within twenty-four hours, he was dead in his cell. Cyanide poisoning. Montgomery looked Kate directly in the eye. I don't think that poor bastard was ever in that alley. I think the cult led Jacob into a trap. And half an hour after word came in, I got a phone call from that senator. He warned me to drop the case, or you and Lisa would be next. A sick, cold feeling churned in Kate's stomach. It took her a long moment to find her voice. I... I don't understand. Why didn't they just kill you, too? Because they knew I had the evidence to charge them, Montgomery said. I had backups of the files in three hidden locations. I'd left sealed instructions with my lawyer and three different reporters. If I turned up dead or disappeared, they had orders to break the story wide open. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Kate said. She rose from her chair and started pacing back and forth in the narrow confines of the room. She ran her fingers through her hair, grabbed fistfuls of it, and pulled, as though that might relieve the pressure on her mind from what Montgomery was telling her. So let me get this straight, she said, still pacing. You had enough proof to tie up the whole case, to take down some of the biggest names in Metamore. Why the hell didn't you use it? Two reasons, Montgomery said. First, for all the evidence we'd found, we still didn't know how far the cult's reach had gotten. If we turned it over to the wrong prosecutor, they'd make it all disappear, and we'd be dead soon thereafter. Kate grimaced. She could only imagine what it felt like to be a cop when you couldn't even trust your own people. And the second reason? You and Lisa, Montgomery said quietly. After they got Jacob, they offered me a deal your lives, and my own, in exchange for my silence. He paused, his eyes going distant. Murakir was furious with me. He demanded that I give him the files, let him finish the job himself. I told him to fuck off. He'd already gotten my partner killed. I wasn't going to let his wife and daughter die, too. We got you both out of here that night, sent you to live with Martha's parents in Ellentown. He shook his head. Murakir went after Hin Khalid's brothers in the Key and Arch Society after that. It was the only lead he had. He murdered them both and left them in the trash behind Justice Tower. After that, the cultists went to ground, and Murakir went back to... wherever he goes when he's not here. Kate stopped pacing, gripped the back of the recliner. So you buried the evidence on a thousand-year death cult to save me and my mother. Anger twisted inside her, and she fought to control her voice. How many people have died since then because you made that bargain? Montgomery growled low in his throat. He was on his feet in an instant. I don't give a damn about that. Your mom and dad were the family I never had. Maybe I could have let them kill me, 
And maybe those reporters would have gotten the word out, and maybe all those scum would have been convicted. If everything went right, that might have been a trade worth making. But I wasn't choosing for just me. I was choosing for Martha, and for Lisa, and for a little three-year-old girl who didn't know anything about cults or conspiracies, or why her daddy didn't come home one day. Montgomery paused, as if letting those words sink in. Kate tried to remember being that three-year-old girl, but her perfect memory didn't reach back that far. As far as she knew, Montgomery could have been describing a stranger. But she knew that was the person he saw when he looked at her. He remembered that little girl, even if she couldn't. Slowly, she felt the anger drain away. You knew what this was about as soon as he saw those files I brought home. Her voice came out quieter than she would have expected. You knew the cult was back. That's why you didn't want me digging into it. A stab of some emotion, guilt, grief, flashed through Montgomery's eyes. That was part of it, he admitted. They already got Jacob. I didn't want them to get you, too. But I meant what I said before. You aren't ready. He said it, frankly, without anger or condescension just the honest opinion of a man she trusted. But it didn't matter now. Ready or not, I'm in it. Murakir tapped me for one of his pawns. Montgomery growled again, but this time it wasn't directed at her. I'd like to wring that bastard's neck for dragging you into this. As if your family hasn't given enough. That sparked Kate's memory of the family tree she had uncovered and all the lingering questions about her supposed non-human heritage. There might be a reason for that. There's something weird about my family, magically speaking. I don't know what it all means yet, but I think Murakir could sense it somehow. He said he found me because we shared the same dreams. Maybe the same thing happened to Jacob. Montgomery grunted, then headed over to the study's walk-in closet. I've got something for you, if you're going to be mixed up in this business. He dug around inside for a couple of minutes, then emerged with a pale green cardboard file box. The words Midnight Snatcher were printed on the end in faded permanent marker. These are the original documents for the Snatcher files, everything Jacob and I uncovered about the cult and its activities. He shrugged one shoulder. They got converted to microfiche about twenty years ago. I had a friend in archives box up the originals, in case the cult tried to doctor the records later. Kate glanced worriedly down at the box, then back up at Montgomery. But isn't this what you used to make your deal? If it gets out, won't they come after us? Montgomery smiled, a tight curl at the corners of his muzzle. You're old enough to make your own choices now. If you think you can take these bastards down, I want you to have every chance to make it stick. Whatever happens to me after that, I can live with it. After a moment's hesitation, Kate took the box. It was heavier than it looked. She carried it to the desk and opened it. It was crammed with file folders, with handwritten labels on the tabs. There's a file in there on Jacob's death, Montgomery said. You should probably have a look at that first. Kate's eyes ran over the tab labels. Most of them were names she didn't recognize, 
but the file at the front of the box read Jacob Valenti. Kate pulled it out and opened it. The folder's contents were sparse, an autopsy report, ballistics on the murder weapon, and written statements from the two police officers who had found his body, or murdered him, if Montgomery's version of events was accurate. Kate scanned briefly through the first statement, flipped to the second, and froze. The junior officer on the scene was Corporal Rowan Shaw. Kate stared at the paper in her now shaking hands. She looked for some discrepancy in the text, an imperfection that might indicate it was a forgery. But no, the MCPD's watermark was there. She could see the faint impressions from the typewriter keys, the scratches from the pen nib where the officer signed her name. She noticed the slight curly cue at the top of the S in Shaw, the way the W's curved into their points instead of moving in straight lines. That was Captain Shaw's signature, all right. Slowly, Kate set down the file. I can't be sure what it means, Montgomery said. I don't know what happened that night. All I know is what the senator told me, and he didn't say who his people were. But Rowan Shaw and their partner were either the first two people to find your father's body, or they were the last to see him alive. And that's the end of Chapter 37. Come back next time when Kate gets more advice from Montgomery and Will and Jared discuss the question of revenge. Tanahasi Coates said, When you write, you're inside the project. You can't really think about the reception. It has to be worth it, even if no one reads it. So step inside with me. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 4,864 words this week, over the course of 6.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 721 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 150 days without breaking my chain. This week I feel like I've finally broken through on homecoming. I mentioned last week how I needed to raise the stakes for the finale, and I figured out how to do that in a way that fits with the rest of the book. I spent some time this week going back and making some small, subtle additions to earlier chapters, highlighting the themes that will be important to the finale. Now I just have to make good on what I've set up. The story is now in chapter 25, and the manuscript stands at roughly 71,500 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.
The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.